Okay then, let's go ahead and ask the Lord's blessing on our time, shall we? Father, thank you that you give us these days, days before we'll spend eternity in heaven with you, days that we can show ourselves worthy or fit for heaven through what we do, not only on Sundays as your people, those that you have commanded that come together to worship you and to proclaim your truth, but also during the week. And Father, I pray that as uh, we are here now and sitting again under the teaching of your glorious word, Father, I pray that each of us comes with a heart that is, again, teachable and ready to take what we've learned and, and to go back into uh, the week and to live those things to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to read with you uh, from Acts uh, chapter 20. If you would, uh, please turn there. <clears throat> Acts chapter 20. And uh, once I am done reading from those verses, uh, we will start at the beginning or at the top of the handout, and I'll have you follow along with me there. So starting first with the biblical text, Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30. Paul is uh, on the Isle of Miletus. He's meeting here with the Ephesian elders. And this is his instruction to them. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, Draw away the disciples after them. Moving over then to our handout. My introduction there at the top. Every Christian should have a vested interest in spotting those wolves that roam among us since they are not only the enemy in closest proximity to us but also the ones with the most potential for causing us eternal spiritual harm. If then we hope to get to heaven, our thinking must change. We tend to think of the dangerous people as those outside our community, but in reality, the most dangerous threat has always come from within. Paul had the expert's understanding of these kinds of wolves and the threat they pose to the body of Christ. In Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30, Paul shares that knowledge with the elders of the Ephesian church and ultimately us. In doing so, two questions are answered. What is a wolf and how do you spot one? What is a wolf and how do you spot one? The first thing that I'd like you to notice before we jump into answering those two questions is 
at what Paul says there in verse 28 about the certainty of wolves. Notice again, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in. Fierce wolves will come in. Uh, we don't want to get the impression or uh, the idea that uh, we can somehow escape this kind of attack. Here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is telling us uh, that this is certain. They will come in among us, or as he says here, among you. There will be wolves. And so our approach to this particular problem cannot be somehow trying to prevent that. Paul again says, they're coming. What we need to focus on then is understanding again, what is a wolf and how then do we spot them? So that takes us then to the first question. What is a wolf? But what does Paul mean by using uh, this term fierce wolves? Well, a wolf or wolves in Scripture, most specifically the New Testament, is a metaphor for a lay person, meaning not an elder or pastor. You may not be familiar with that term, lay person. That refers to someone in the congregation who is not serving as an elder or a pastor. Wolves is a New Testament metaphor for that kind of a person, a lay member or person, not an elder or pastor, within the covenant community who consciously or unconsciously attempts to lead others astray in the church through what they say or teach. And so let me just say all of that again. What is a wolf or wolves? Well, that is a New Testament metaphor for a lay person, meaning again, not an elder or pastor, within the covenant community who consciously or unconsciously attempts to lead others astray in the church through what they say or teach. And so now I want to support that definition uh, for you. The first part then, a lay person within the covenant community. Uh, look again at verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Whoever the uh, wolves are, uh, Paul is assuming them to be in the congregation, not among the elders. Hence the reason he gives the primary function of looking out or spotting them to the elders. That's why it says what it does in what we just read. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Overseers are elders. So what is he saying there? You, the elders, be on guard for who? Pay careful attention for who? Wolves among you. Not the elders in the congregation. And so uh, this idea of wolves, we don't want to uh, attribute, which happens, it seems like, more than not. Uh, the wolf uh, category is uh, attributed to elders. Well, that's not how Paul is using uh, the term here. Uh, that's uh, reinforced in uh, verses 29 and 30 as well. Again, speaking to the elders, that's the context here. Verse 29, fierce wolves will come in among you. 
Verse 30, from among your own selves. What is he talking about? Lay members of the congregation. Elders, you watch for these individuals. They're going to come in among you. Not you. You're not the, 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 the wolves. That's not who Paul is saying will be the wolves. It's those who come in. It's the congregation. It's lay people that will function in this way. Uh, does that mean that uh, they cannot be among the elders? Uh, no. It doesn't mean that. That, however, is not where we're to start, according to Paul. If we're looking for wolves, and again, they will come. The place that we're to be looking for them is among the congregation, not among the leadership. Uh, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Uh, if you'll turn, put your finger in here and just turn there. Here, uh, again, we find uh, this term uh, wolf or wolves being used uh, by Jesus. And uh, again, uh, the focus is not on uh, the leaders, uh, but on the congregation. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Uh, sheep, not shepherds. Do you see the distinction? Uh, the shepherds, that's the term that is used to, uh, to describe uh, leaders in the church, they are shepherds. Who Paul is identifying, and Jesus even in his uh, uh, instruction here as it relates to false prophets, those coming in and claiming to be prophets who are indeed false, uh, they come as sheep. They are not among the shepherds. Now again, does that mean that uh, shepherds or pastors can't ever be wrong? No, but that is a separate issue. As it relates to those that we're to be looking for as wolves, they're in the body, not in the leadership. They are sheep, not shepherds. Point number two, uh, in support, a lay person in the covenant community who consciously or unconsciously attempts to lead others astray in the church. Going back uh, to our text, verse 30, notice there, and from among your own souls will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Draw away the disciples after them. Convince others to listen to them versus the church or her elders. Why do I say that? Well, uh, consider again the context. Verse 28. This is who they're drawing the, the, uh, the disciples away from. From the overseers in the church. That's why Paul says, pay careful attention. They're going to come in among you, and they will draw the disciples away after them. Away from who? Away from you, the leaders, the church. Uh, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, putting your finger again in here and turning now over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, there uh, he speaks of similar folk, and this is how uh, Paul identifies them there uh, Verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That first term, imposter, uh, if you were to look that up, you'd, you'd see that it means this, a person who's identified as part of a group but whose actions are meant to destroy it or its agenda. That's, a, that's an imposter. So here's that idea of a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? They look like the rest of us, 
They look like the rest of the congregation, but in reality, uh, they're working by their actions against the congregation or the church and its agenda. Deceiving and being deceived. Notice again it says that. They're imposters who will go from bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived. Here's the answer uh, to that question. Well, are they conscious or unconscious when they do this? Meaning aware of what they're doing. And I get that question all the time as it relates to uh, people who are false teachers. People ask me, uh, do you think that they know what they're doing? Well, I think to some degree that they do. And as I say here, as it relates to the wolves, they may know that what they're doing is deceitful and wrong, uh, but we have to realize too, according to what Paul says here, they have deceived themselves into thinking that their actions are justified. And that's what he's getting at here when he says, deceiving and being deceived. They themselves are being deceived. In what way? They've now justified their unjustifiable practice. And uh, uh, I've given you an example of... uh, how this plays out. They're the righteous warrior just uncovering the conspiracy in the church, right? That's all they're doing. Isaiah 8, verse 12 says, don't believe such conspiracies when they arise in the covenant community. But in their minds, they're, they're justified in what they're doing. So a lay person within the covenant community who consciously or unconsciously attempts to lead others astray in the church. Where am I getting that from? And I want you to see again, it's coming from the text. They're in among you. They're not you, the you referring to the leaders, the overseers. They're not you, but they are among you, which means he's referring to the congregation, the sheep, not the shepherds, and what they're doing is attempting unconsciously or consciously to lead astray the church or the people in the church or to lead them away from the leadership. Again, where am I getting that from? They will draw away the disciples after them. And so again, whether they're aware of it or not is really not the issue. They themselves are deceived, leading people astray. And such a deception is oftentimes subtle, not overt or obvious, and sensual, subtle and sensual, meant to play on the people's emotions. Genesis chapter 3 uh, is a good example of this uh, with Satan in the Garden of Eden. And uh, really both of these things are, are, are present there, both the subtlety of his approach as well as playing on the emotions of the man and the woman. Starting there in verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty and that term crafty literally in the Hebrew means, uh, means uh, clever or subtle. He was more subtle than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? Notice the subtlety of it. He doesn't just right away come out and say, he didn't. The approach is, like I say, not overt or obvious. Jude talks about that they creep in unnoticed. It's that type of idea. Here's the idea of coming in and looking like the rest of us, but it's putting questions in the minds of God's people. You see, that's all Satan's doing here, right? Did, did, Did he really say that? 
A subtle approach. Now, uh, he goes a little further than that by verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, uh, you will surely not die. But notice here now an appeal to the emotions. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Isn't that what you want? The woman takes the bait, verse 6, emotionally. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes. Everything that we're being told here, is all built on emotions. She sees it and uh, she says, yeah, right? Satan plays to the emotions. He's subtle about it. Both of those things. By the way, uh, an appeal to emotions is also a part of the false teacher's arsenal, according to 2 Peter, uh, which we looked at uh, several weeks ago in, in a practicum. But just reminding you of that, 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Here again, Peter making it certain that's going to happen, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, their appeal to the senses, literally, is what it's saying. And because of them, the way of truth, the right way, uh, will be blasphemed. They, like Satan, suggest or appeal to our already existing doubts about those in authority. Uh, that was Satan in relation to God, right? That's what Satan's doing in relation to Adam and Eve's authority, God. Did God really say that? And why, why would God do that? Why doesn't God want the best for you? And wouldn't the best be for you that you be like him? You see, God's keeping something from you. Again, an appeal to already existing doubts about those in authority. Have you ever heard that statement to uh, 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 authority, uh, what is it? Um, authority corrupts and corrupts absolutely. Is that how it goes? Or absolutely. Do you know, that, you know who said that? Does anybody know who said that? It was an anarchist that said that. You know how many times I've heard people use that as though that's something good? It was an anarchist that said that. You see, this is the kind of thing that comes out of the mouth of Satan, you see. He says, look, God wants all that to himself. Do, do you really think that that's right? You see, an appeal to the, to the emotions. Right? To already existing doubts about authority. And again, this is the wolf in one of the ways in which they deceive or attempt to lead astray or draw away the disciples after them. Finishing out my definition, through what they say or teach. So a lay person within the covenant community, I think that's already been established, from among you, they are sheep, not shepherds, who consciously or unconsciously attempt to lead others astray in the church to draw away the disciples after them through what they say or teach. Verse 30, how they do it. Again, looking at the text. Uh, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away. They do it through, their, uh, through speech. Their primary means of attack is speech. They lead others astray through the things they say. That brings us then to how we spot them. How do you spot a wolf? We now know uh, what defines a wolf. 
We might say we're to look for a wolf, but how do you spot them? How do you know that you're really dealing with a wolf? Well, if we're attempting to do so by our natural senses, our emotions, it can be very hard, especially given the fact uh, that not only are they our brothers and sisters to whom we've already given a level of trust, they're also manipulating our emotions as the, mean to, as the means to get us to trust them even more. However, however, if we consider what else Paul tells us about them in these verses, spotting them becomes rather easy. There are three things total, three things they lack. Which means this, when attempting to determine who to trust is telling you the truth, who's the wolf, who's not the wolf, these three things or categories are what we need to be assessing them by. They are also where we need to be asking the questions. If they fail the questions, they fail the test and prove themselves to be wolves. Here's the first category. Loyalty. Loyalty. Wolves lack loyalty to or real care for the rest of those in the body of Christ. Looking back to the text, verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Who's the flock? The congregation, the body of Christ. Rather than protecting uh, that group of people, their church family, doing what they can to preserve the unity of that family or congregation, the body of Christ, through reconciliation and justice, wolves work division, which brings destruction not only on them, but also those who follow them. They will also sacrifice, not spare, again, catch the word, not sparing the flock. They will sacrifice, not spare others, to stay out of trouble. An example, ratting out others as the means to protecting themselves. They are likewise fickle in their commitment to the body of Christ as a whole. The moment they get their toes stepped on or they don't get what they want, they start looking to leave their church family behind. Their lack of loyalty, however, is revealed most by how they leave. They act as though the church or her leaders are putting them in spiritual jeopardy, but then make no effort to save the rest of the flock who, according to their claims, would mean they too are in spiritual jeopardy. Again, not sparing the flock. They are deserting soldiers and cowards. The safety and salvation of the rest of the body of Christ is not a concern to them. Additional scriptural support for this, I would invite you to turn over to John's first epistle. He has a lot to say about these, uh, these types of individuals. Verses 6 and 7, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, in the truth, as Jesus, he is in the light, we, here's how you know it, we have fellowship with one another. 
Koinonia is the term that we're bound to each other, that we're devoted to each other. That's a sign that you are walking in the light and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses you from sin. You are having fellowship. You are loyal to the body of Christ. John continues, chapter 2, verses uh, 10 and 11. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Here again, the same connection. You have fellowship, you're loyal. That word love means loyalty. Whoever is loyal to his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother, who is disloyal, is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You see the connection between loyalty and those who are legitimately sheep versus those who are wolves. Verses 18 and 19, children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist, those who are actually against Christ, is coming. So now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. They, these individuals, went out from us, but they were not of us. For had they been of us, they would have continued with us. Notice that again. What's the issue? Loyalty. If they really were legitimate sheep rather than wolves in sheep's clothing, they would have remained. They would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Chapter 3. Again, John essentially devotes his whole letter to uh, this particular subject. Chapter 3, verse 10, By this it is evident who the children of God and who the children of the devil are. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love. And again, this idea of loyalty is not loyal to his brother, who does not love his brother. Verse 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We lay down our lives. We save them. We spare them. We remain committed to them. If we're truly sheep and not wolves. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Be loyal to one another. For loyalty is from God or love. And whoever is loyal or loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love or is loyal does not know God because God is love. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love, be loyal to one another. And so it's all over, John. This distinction of loyalty, the distinction that determines who's in, who's out, who's legit, who's not legit. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother. And again, based on the context, again, this idea, loyalty, uh, equaling love. Anyone who hates then, uh, uh, hates his disloyalty. Anyone who is disloyal to the brother, his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love, he is not loyal to his brother whom he has seen. Cannot be loyal to God, love God whom he has not. This commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, is loyal to God, must also be loyal or love his brother. John chapter 10, Jesus there in verses 11 through 13 makes a distinction between the true shepherd and the hired hand. And uh, similar to the wolf in sheep's clothing, he says the hired hand, when he sees danger, he leaves the flock. No concern for them. 
if I can use them to get myself ahead, uh, then I'll do that. But as far as my concern or my loyalty to them, it doesn't exist. And yet in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, by this the world will know that you are my disciples, by your loyalty to one another. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 Paul tells us there that this is how we prove ourselves to be blameless, our loyalty not only to the congregation or one another, but in chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, by our loyalty to the leadership, to the leadership. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verses 12 and 13, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love. Loyalty because of their work. Be at peace, meaning with them among yourselves. So all of these things tied to legitimate sheep, which means the antithesis would also be true, uh, that uh, if you're not legitimate, then you are not a person who is loyal. That's the, uh, the markings or how you spot a wolf. They're not loyal. The other uh, texts you'll see there, and you could look up Colossians 3.14, Ephesians 4, uh, or Colossians 3.14 and 15, Ephesians 4.3, all dealing with uh, keeping the unity in the church, unity in the church and the bond of peace, Philippians 2.22. They're really starting in verse 19. Paul t- says this is how he knew uh, that Timothy uh, was legit because of his love uh, for the body of Christ, his constant concern for them. Uh, this is, as Paul says, his proven worth. Hence the reason also for the commands regarding uh, unity of mind in the body of Christ and those passages in places like Jude 1, 19, uh, Romans 16, 17, and 18, and 2 Timothy 3, uh, 1 through 8, that talk about those who are disloyal or creating division. Romans chapter 16. Again, to the elders, I appeal to your brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but, they, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Watch out for them. Very similar to Paul's words there back in Acts 20, right? Pay careful attention. Watch out. And so how do you spot them? Well, they don't care anything about the flock. They're not sparing the flock. And so here's the question when attempting to determine whether or not a person is a wolf. Are they loyal to the body of Christ? Are they aiming for restoration when there's problems in the church? Are they aiming for restoration? 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Aim for restoration. Are they doing that? Are they loyal to the body of Christ? Number two, the second category, church. Wolves do not recognize the authority or jurisprudence or system of justice in the church. Wolves do not recognize the authority or system of justice in the church. Uh, the church. Going back to our text, verse 30, and from among your own selves will arise uh, men. Uh, That uh, phrase there, will arise, literally self-appoint. From among you or among your own selves, uh, men will self-appoint. That's literally what he says there. 
And what does that tell us then about wolves, these wolves? They're people who do not recognize the authority of the church. They instead appoint themselves to that place of authority. As such, they have no problem standing against the church or her elders. They likewise refuse to stand before her courts. Once more, they appoint themselves the judges of justice, salvation, and right doctrine. Additional support for this, Deuteronomy chapter 19, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses uh, 15 through 17, and uh, actually that's uh, better suited for the next point. Uh, The better text here is Deuteronomy 17, uh, verses 8 through, I believe it's uh, 13, but it might be 20. Deuteronomy 17, I know it starts in verse 8 and goes to the end there, uh, that God has uh, given us a place the church to go to to deal with issues when we have problems. Oh, I know I did 19. Never mind, I actually was right about that. Turn over to 19. Just hit me. So in 19, you have something very similar to what you see in uh, 17 that I mentioned here, 17, 18, or 8, 8 through 13. Uh, but the reason I picked 19, 15 uh, through 17 is uh, because um, of what you're to do when there's a dispute in the body of Christ. Because what we see here in the language that we find here is, is pretty much identical to what we find then in the New Testament in Matthew 18. So let me just start by reading verse 15. Uh, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Notice that. A single witness. Doesn't work. Insufficient evidence. Can't do it. It doesn't matter. uh, Any crime, any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. You cannot lay a charge. It doesn't matter. You say, "I, I saw it with my own eyes. That's not enough. It's not enough. You can't do that. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So you need to have sufficient evidence. If then a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of a wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. So uh, what are we supposed to do? It doesn't matter what the problem is. What are we supposed to do? We are, verse 17, if there's a dispute, we shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. That's how we solve matters in the body of Christ. Well, wolves, they don't recognize that. You see, uh, they have self-appointed themselves to those positions. And yet, according to Scripture, when we have problems, We appear before the Lord. Where is the Lord? In his house. What is the Lord's house? According to 1 Timothy 3, it is the church. The place where his New Testament priests, Isaiah 66, 21, as well as uh, other places, where those priests, Psalm 135, where those particular priests reside, in the church. Now again, keeping in mind what we read here, go to Matthew 18. your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. What is he doing here? He's following uh, the protocol that's established back in Deuteronomy 19. 
There's a dispute. There's a problem. And he says, okay, he doesn't listen to you. You're not able to resolve that uh, dispute. Here's what you need to do. You need to bring sufficient evidence, whether that's people who saw uh, this person do the thing you're claiming that they did or whatever it is, you're to have sufficient evidence. And notice again, the evidence of two or three witnesses is coming directly from the Old Testament, which means all of this stuff is being pushed forward into the new. It's still legitimate today. And the place to do that, the place to have these kinds of uh, uh, disputes is in the church. Look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So you weren't able to resolve the issue and uh, between the two of you. And so what do you do? You bring all of that evidence and you go to the church. The place where the Lord shall appear before you or you shall rather, uh, sorry, not that way, uh, the other way, you shall appear before the Lord. Where is that place? The place where his priests and judges reside. Again, the church. Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Uh, Let him be apostate. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind, uh, this group, the church, on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. There's the authority of the church that the wolf refuses to recognize. That authority of binding and loosing, people in their sins, out of their sins, people in, in covenant with Christ, people out of covenant with Christ, people saved and unsaved. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul actually chides the Corinthians for not doing this. They had disputes among them and they were not taking it to the church's court to deal with them. Speaking to that in 1 Corinthians 6, he says this, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? In other words, to take it to the secular courts. Does he dare to do that? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Again, rhetorical question. The answer is no. We're competent enough to judge the world. We can judge trivial cases among ourselves. Do you not know that we are to judge the angels? How much more than the matter pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the Again, so uh, where are we to go when we have problems? The church. How do we resolve those? How do we discern what is truth? In the church. In the church. Which means another sign that you're dealing with the wolf. You see just how easy it is? Do they have loyalty to the body of Christ? No. Uh, Do do, do they come before the church? Do they follow the the prescribed protocol by God himself? Because remember, uh, these wolves are acting as though they're sheep. They say, oh, I follow Jesus too. Well, not if you're following the the prescribed protocol. If they won't listen to the church, if they won't listen to God's established institution, the church, her courts, then let them be to you as the tax collector, as the dentist. Let them be to you as unbelievers. Let them be apostate. That's his point. And this goes back to what we see there at the end of Deuteronomy 17, uh, verse 12, and uh, what, it's, what we're told or how it's reinforced in Numbers chapter 15, verses 30 and 31. Romans chapter 13, Paul deals with the issue of uh, authority or those established by God and says this, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there's no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Well, that would include the church, wouldn't it? More than any other authority That's the one that is most legitimate. 
definitely when he says governing authorities, he's including the church. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Wow. A church is an authority? You say, well, I, I don't think that uh, uh, my church is uh, righteous. Well, notice again this, uh, these, these, uh, these uh, words here that, that are stated by, or are given by Paul here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit it tells us that the reason that we're to submit to them has nothing to do with whether or not we find them to be righteous. It has everything to do with the fact that God is the one that's appointed them or established them. This, this is why, uh, by the way, beloved, uh, that both Jesus and Paul submitted uh, to defending their positions before the unrighteous covenant leaders and church of their day. We have examples both in Jesus, in the Gospels, and in relation to Paul in the book of Acts, going before the established covenant community or the religious leaders of, of their day, even though they knew those individuals to be unrighteous and corrupt, and yet they understood what it was that God required, and so they went there and they made their case. John chapter 18 John chapter 18, Jesus before the high priest. John 18, 19 through 23, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Do you see what he's doing there by his response? He's saying, I did it the way it's supposed to be done. I followed proper protocol. I didn't go off in secret. I wasn't like a wolf, you know, sending uh, little, little messages out to individual people and whispering behind the scenes. I, I, I was open about everything. I did it the right way. Notice that Jesus is saying this to a court, in this case, which is corrupt. And yet Jesus says, I did it the right way. I did it the right way. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me uh, what I said to them. They know what I said. Jesus did it the right way. Jesus, even in his defense, look at verse, uh, uh, why do you ask me what they say? Then verse 22, when he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus said, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But, what if, I, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Notice Jesus is defending himself. And how is he defending himself? He's saying, bring the evidence. And Jesus is holding himself, Jesus is holding himself accountable to them. He says, look, if I did something wrong, bear witness to it. He's not saying, no, I didn't do anything wrong. He's saying, look, I'm, I'm open right here. I'm before the court. Before the court, you show me, and I will submit to what the court finds. That's Jesus. Even Jesus. In John chapter 7, it's interesting. So just prior to this, uh, there are individuals, because Jesus says that where I go, you cannot come, they say, uh, is he going to go off into the diaspora? Is he going to go out and teach the Greeks, or is he going to take his life? And, and, and they're under this impression because they've seen others do this. When the authorities come against them, because what we're told there in those verses is that they're, they're about to arrest Jesus. And, and, and they say, and Jesus makes a statement, and what he's talking about is eternity. You're not going to come with me into eternity. And, and, but they take it as he's going to go off and run away from the authorities. He, he's going to run away from God's established authority on earth. And that isn't at all what Jesus meant, and he proved it. He didn't run away. But that's what they thought. Why did they think that? Because that's what most people do. That's what wolves do. As it relates to Paul, Acts chapter 23. 
Again, Paul before the same uh, courts that Jesus encountered, corrupt courts among the Jews. Acts 23, verses 1 through 5, and looking intently at the council. This is Sanhedrin. This is Jewish council. Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Notice, Paul is in compliance. Even, Paul, even though Paul's the righteous guy in, in, in this particular situation. Paul's the one with the gospel. They're the ones that are suppressing and denying it. They're the corrupt ones. They're the unrighteous ones. And yet Paul, because he understands what God says about the established institution, goes before them, makes his defense there. Again, notice how he starts. Brothers, I live my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Then prove it. And that's what Paul does. Paul doesn't say, I have, while he's running away and throwing stones. Paul doesn't run off away from the courts. Paul doesn't run away from the church. He goes to the church to make his defense. Acts chapter 26. Paul here before Agrippa. This is all part of the same thing. As a matter of fact, Acts chapter 20, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, He stops at Miletus to meet with these elders there, and he's on his way to Jerusalem where he'll ultimately be arrested. And then what we have in the rest of the book of Acts is him being passed around between all these different uh, Jewish dignitaries and others before he goes to Rome uh, to speak before uh, Caesar. Here he's before Agrippa. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made notice his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. Okay, accusations. Where do you make, what do you do? You come to the courts and you defend yourself. Especially because you are familiar with all the custom and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from beginning uh, among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time. If you're willing to testify that according to the strictest part of the religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise uh, made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain and they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. Notice he's making his case. He doesn't try to run away from it. He doesn't call the other disciples and say, you need to get me out of this situation. And yet that's what always happens in the case of wolves, right? We've seen it here in this body. Is it, is it, they're right, but they won't come before the courts and, and, and defend themselves. They won't come and make their case, even though that is the examples that we have in Scripture from both Jesus and Paul, and that is what we're prescribed, commanded to do. And again, it has nothing to do with what they think of uh, the people uh, in that particular uh, courtroom, per se. It has everything to do with the fact that this is what God calls them to do. This, by the way, uh, is why uh, when there was disagreement in the church over what was being taught, even doctrine, uh, what people thought should be taught, it was taken to the church. That's Acts 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. That was one group. You need to do that. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, argument, and debate with them, notice, no small, big argument and debate, it happened. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem and to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way to the church, notice, where they're to go? To the church. 
That's where you resolve things in the church. That's where God wants things resolved, to appear again before the Lord. False teachers and troublemakers oppose such scrutiny. We see a man by the name of uh, Diotrephes, I think is his name, or Demetrius, or Third John, uh, who opposed such authority, and uh, John uh, makes uh, note of him, Demetrius, uh, makes mention of him. He says, I've written, for something, I've, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I'll bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. This has always been a problem. There have always been wolves in the church. The question is, how do we identify them? Well, here then is the question. Are they willing to defend their claims before the church and submit to its authority? Right. See, this is really easy, isn't it? First question, are they loyal to the body of Christ? Are they willing to defend their claims? If you're right and what you're saying is true, then bring it before the body of Christ. John chapter 3, you don't have this in your, in your, your notes. I would encourage you to write this down. I thought about this as I was driving in. John chapter 3, in verses 20 and 21, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. There it is, right there. Hey, man, if you're walking the light, if what you're telling me is true, then bring it to the church, man. You've got nothing to hide. You've got nothing to hide. But those who are walking in the darkness, what does he say? They hate the light. They will not come to the light, lest their works, what they're saying, be exposed for what it really is. The Christian sovereign citizen movement similar to the secular sovereign citizen who does not uh, recognize the authority of the American government or its courts, the Christian version of this does not recognize the authority of the church and will not be held accountable to its courts. It should be noted that even the heretic Martin Luther understood the authority of the church, including those who were corrupt, the Roman Catholic Church. Hence the reason for attending the Diet of Worms and his famous Here I Stand defense in 1521. Even Luther understood the importance. So again, the question to ask these people, to discern who's the wolf and who's not. Are they willing to defend their claims before the church and submit to its authority? Now, it should be obvious you can't answer yes to the first question, are they loyal to the body of Christ, and no to this question, since by their refusal to follow God's prescription for dealing with problems in the church, going before the church or her congregation, they are saying one of two things, both which further reveal their lack of loyalty and what they really think of everyone else in the church. Number one, they're either saying this or the other. One, the congregation is not competent to give them a fair trial. So they say, oh, I won't do that. I'm not coming before the church. You say, why? What is it? You don't think we're competent? Or number two, you think we're corrupt. I don't like the leadership there. Well, that's the first problem because wolves, that's what wolves do. It's always against the leadership, right? We see that going back to Acts chapter 20. And uh, uh, you, you say, but that doesn't matter. You're going, to be, you're going to be judged not just by the leaders, but by the congregation as a whole. Uh, so what are you saying by that? You say you're loyal to me. You, 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 you say that I, you believe that I'm a brother or sister in Christ. But what are you saying if you won't come and you won't let me handle that issue for you? You're either saying one of two things. Either you think I'm incompetent or you think I'm corrupt. Otherwise you'd be here. Otherwise, you'd be loyal to the body of Christ. 
which means you'd show up to God's prescribed courts and let them do their job. The final category that I think makes this incredibly easy, you start with the first loyalty, you have the second church, and the final is scripture or evidence. Scripture or evidence. Wolves cannot give correct, correct scriptural support or sufficient evidence for their claims. Wolves cannot give correct scriptural support or sufficient evidence for their claims. And this is really now just speaking to uh, what Paul is uh, getting at there in verse 30 when he says, from among your own selves will arise or self-appoint, men self-appointing, speaking twisted things. This is what they use to draw people away. These are the, the words that are filled with the emotion that are subtle, but they're twisted or perverted. And that's literally what that term twisted means, uh, perverted things. So what does that look like in relation to the scriptures? Uh, well, it means that these wolves are cherry-picking scripture. Meaning they're, they're pulling out the pieces that, that seem to support their position. Uh, they're taking scripture out of context. As a result, what they use to lead others astray may be words or verses from the Bible, but they are twisted or perverted. Paul's use of the word things means that the scope of what is being twisted or perverted would include other information as well. In this case, the evidence behind their accusations against the church or her leadership it is based on speculation versus proven to be fact. Twisting uh, limited only to the scripture. We have an example of that, meaning where that term twisted or perverting is being limited only to scripture, which means that Paul could have used uh, the word scripture rather than things, and he didn't choose to do that. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 16. There Peter uses uh, twisting in relation to scripture. They twist the scripture to their own destruction. So additional scriptural support for this. Well, uh, the context we're in right now, or presently in, the verses just before it, notice what uh, Paul says. Therefore I testify to you this day that I'm, the, I'm innocent of the blood of all, and here's why. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. What is Paul saying by that? This is his defense. He says, look, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a righteous man, and you know that, because what I gave to you came from the whole counsel of God. It means that he preached a gospel that squared or was consistent with and in agreement with the entirety of God's words versus only a portion of those words. And uh, uh, the, uh, the idea that it was indeed, or, or rather the, the, the fact that it was indeed the gospel, you see in verse 24, uh, he says, but I do not account my life of value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That gospel was a whole counsel of God gospel. All of God's word, not a portion. Historically, this is known as the analogy of scripture. Uh, that is a, a fancy five-cent term that just uh, means this. Biblical interpretation or doctrine demonstrates itself to be true by its agreement with all of scripture and its unifying of the gospel message. So just because I can pull something out of a text and say, well, that's what it means, it may look like it means that within that immediate context, but I need to make sure that I'm vetting it against the rest of Scripture. This is what Isaiah 8, verse 20 is getting at when it says to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this, 
They have no dawn. That, uh, no dawn. Uh, that phrase, uh, according to, in agreement with, consistent with. Second Timothy chapter 1, a, te- a text I think that uh, oftentimes goes uh, missed, part of uh, Paul's instruction to Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words. That term, uh, a pattern there is uh, where we get the word paradigm from in the Greek. Follow the pattern. What is he saying here uh, by that? Follow the pattern of sound words. The doctrine of gospel which finds its agreement in all of Scripture. That's what a, what a paradigm, even a pattern is. Something that is consistent and repeated. Which means if you can't make uh, whatever you believe reconcile with the rest of what Scripture teaches, then what you're teaching is not the gospel. Is not correct. This is why in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, uh, Paul calls it one faith, one gospel. This is why in Galatians chapter 3, uh, uh, verse 8, uh, he says the gospel we preach was the same preached to Abraham. There's no difference between Old Testament and New Testament. An example of this is, uh, we've talked about many times, Luther or evangelicalism's uh, faith alone gospel. Uh, it teaches faith is the only condition to salvation which ignores the other clear condition established in the Bible faithful obedience to God's laws. Someone has said they possess a canon within a canon. That means if this is the canon, the rule of faith, that's what that term uh, canon means, uh, then they have uh, something inside of that that they're holding to. Uh, A religion within the religion. Uh, We'll get to that here in just a second. Uh, The term or the proper term for that is cult. Here's uh, Daniel Fuller. His father was the one that started Fuller theological seminary he says this luther's rule of faith hermeneutics took matthew mark luke hebrews and james out of the canon meaning he wasn't willing to look at those books because uh, they didn't agree with the gospel that he had invented evangelicalism's denial of observance of the law is necessary to salvation makes them a cult what do i say that well go back to the book of acts so this is just after uh, after Acts, uh, what we see with Paul in Acts 20, so you have in 21, he arrives at uh, Jerusalem, and uh, when he gets there, there James uh, has a conversation with him because there are individuals uh, in the church who are, are taking issue with things that they've heard about Paul. Reading, starting in verse 19, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, and when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews Of those who have believed, they are zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews uh, who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. That phrase, forsake Moses, you know what that means? You don't have to obey the law. You don't have to do what God says as it relates to the law. The laws somehow ended or no longer in place, telling them not to circumcise their children to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know there is nothing in what has been told about you but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So, 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 so get the picture here of what's going on and why I say evangelicalism is a cult. Evangelicalism, according to their gospel, which is Martin Luther's gospel, says the only thing necessary, this is where they get faith alone. Faith alone means faith is all that is needed to be saved. Faith alone. Well, here, Paul comes to the Jerusalem church, and the Jews there, here, they think that that's what Paul's essentially teaching. That we don't need to also observe the law to be saved. 
And so James says to, uh, says to Paul, look, here, you go to the temple, do the things that are required, and show them that there's nothing to this. Uh, turning over down to 24, because here's what happens. He goes to the temple and he gets arrested by the Jews. And the problem that the Jews had was exactly the same as those Jews who were in the Jerusalem church. They too thought that what Paul was preaching was to forsake Moses, or you don't need to be obedient to God's law to be saved. Now get this, don't lose me here. They believed it, and as a result of that, they, they called the Christians a cult. A cult. Where am I getting that from? Well, in chapter 24, Paul has uh, been arrested now, and he's being brought before Felix. The Jews are going to show up there and make their case against him. And uh, verse 5, notice, For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots. These are the Jews now speaking. Uh, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Jesus uh, is the Nazarene. That's what he's referring to. Uh, but that word there, I've told you, I think, before. That word sect is literally where we get the word cult from in the Greek. So what, the, what, what, what are they saying? They're saying, this man right here, this man is in a cult. He claims to be a legitimate follower of God, but he's a cult. Now, move down to uh, verse 14, because when Paul makes his defense, here's what comes out. And you'll notice it's exactly the same thing uh, that the Jews in Jerusalem were having a problem with and why they thought that Paul had derailed himself. It's that they thought he wasn't following the law. So what does Paul do? What does Paul address? Verse 14, but, I, uh, but this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, a cult, I want you to know, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Do you see that? Now do you understand why I say evangelicalism is the cult? Because in Paul's day, they were the cult. In Paul's day, the cult were those who said, you don't need to follow the law anymore, it's faith alone. I, I got news for you, you ain't reading your Bible, because that's exactly the issue they were addressing there. In both of those cases, it's Paul, if you believe this, you're a part of a cult. Not only did the church in Jerusalem not buy that kind of teaching, but neither did the Jews. That was a cult. Anyone ever says we're a cult? It's just the opposite. You say, well, let's, let's go to the scripture. Let's look at that word where, where we see the word cult. Let's define it according to the biblical text. Not what the world thinks, but what the Bible says. What actually makes you a cult? Here's the irony. You know what makes you a cult? You teach that obedience is nice, but not necessary. You teach that the law somehow disappeared. Wow, that'll blow you. I mean, right there, that blows your mind. You read that kind of stuff and you go, wow. There's a lot of people missing the mark. And again, notice, it's in the text. I'm not making this stuff up. This then is what identifies a Christian cult. It's abolishment of the law as necessary to salvation. Uh, why do I bring that up? Well, because that's uh, one of, the, uh, one of the, 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 the arrows in the uh, wolves' arsenal. Right? In a church like this, what are they going to play? They're going to play the card of, well, that, that, that's, that's not true, you see. That law stuff, that, that, that's, that's pharisaical. That, you're a legalist, right? Paul made it clear that his gospel was, in this respect, consistent with the gospel preached under the Old Covenant. It did include observance of the law. Lastly, by way of scriptural support, or rather... Uh, needing sufficient evidence, that coming from the scripture, you know the text, Deuteronomy 19, that uh, we looked at earlier, 15 through 21. On the basis of one witness, 
nothing stands. Sufficient evidence. Matthew 18, we saw the same thing. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19 says you're not to bring charges against the elders, the leaders of the church, without two or three witnesses. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, New Testament, not old. Paul says, when I come, you better have your witnesses. You better have your witnesses. So the final question to ask then, beloved, when attempting to determine whether or not a person is a wolf, do their claims square with the whole of Scripture? And or is there sufficient evidence to treat their claims as fact? It really is simple. Are they loyal to the body of Christ? Will they defend their accusations before that body and submit to their ruling? And do their claims, what they're going to bring as accusations, do they square with the whole of Scripture, not cherry-picking pieces out? Or do they possess sufficient evidence to treat what their claims are as fact? Closing contemplation then. Satan uses wolves to devour others in the body. We saw that in 1 Peter chapter 8. Satan prowls around. Well, he's using the wolves to do his work. Asking these three questions when faced with those making accusations against others in the church, including their leaders or the church itself, is an easy way to spot them and to see that they are removed before they harm others. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we've had time to discuss this. I pray that your people haven't got lost in all of the data, that they remember these three questions. So important. Are they loyal to the body of Christ? Are they willing to defend it before your church, before your courts? And is there sufficient evidence uh, to do so? If they don't meet that truth test, then they are, according to your word, they are wolves. Father, I pray we'd take that away. We'd use that to uh, defend and to protect this body to your glory. Make it so, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.